Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This episode is brought to you by OnRamp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see. And in the current wild west of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. This episode is brought to you by QuantStamp. QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations, they're about to finish Y Combinator's Winter 18 batch. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. My guest today for Unconfirmed is Ari Paul, CIO of Block Tower Capital. Welcome, Ari. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me. So what have you been thinking about this week? Uh, well, hard not to, to be watching markets as we've, we're now in uh, basically, what, two and a half months into a bear market. Um, and especially with a lot of the smaller cryptocurrencies, um, the sell-off seems to be, uh, I, I don't want to say accelerating, but but certainly at least continuing. Um, so been been very focused on that, trying to identify kind of when that market trend is likely to change. And why do you think that's happening with those smaller assets? Um, so it, it was really interesting. The markets peaked around mid-January, and then kind of everything sold off together, which was really weird and surprising to me because I, I would have expected there to be a quite a flight to quality effect. I would have expected, you know, Bitcoin was down fifty percent. I would have expected everything, many other assets, to be down more like seventy-five, and really everything was kind of down together on that first sell-off that brought us down to about fifty-seven hundred dollars in Bitcoin. And then what we've seen in the last two months is kind of a reversion to what we would normally expect, which is the higher beta stuff acting higher beta. So, you know, Bitcoin has bounced back uh, a little bit from those lows and other assets have actually made new lows since then. And I think that that reflects a general wariness. The story that's spreading throughout crypto, throughout kind of the crypto community is skepticism over a lot of uh, younger experimental projects. You know, the idea that you can have a test net that is being valued at multiple billions of dollars. Um, so, I, you know, I think I think when sentiment goes from being wildly optimistic to just a little bit more skeptical, it's wait, you know, this thing's worth three billion, but what if it's only worth a hundred million? You know, it's kind of like, well, is there a floor, right? So, so with Bitcoin, I think you know we all think that there's some kind of a floor, and the discussion is mostly um, over where do you buy or, or how long does the bear market last. But most, I mean, I think every all of your listeners at least believe there's some fundamental value there. But if you know, with a lot of these projects, some of which are valued over a billion dollars, um, even if you believe in them as as prospective, interesting experimental technologies, maybe they're seed stage investments, right? Maybe they should be valued at ten million dollars, not a billion dollars. And you know, as people think about that, that's pretty scary, right? If you have a, a billion dollar asset in your portfolio and you suddenly realize, wow, this thing could fall 95% without anything going wrong, just as a repricing. So I think the market's kind of um, thinking along those lines. And then a couple of questions. So in the middle there, I think you said that in January, Bitcoin dropped to 5,700, but it didn't. It was, or did you 
say something else? I maybe I misheard. Oh, so the 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 lows in Bitcoin were fifty seven hundred. Um, the, the the highs, the the all time high. Uh, well, it, basically the market peaked as a whole in mid January. So the the peak was in January, and then uh, when I'm actually I don't I don't remember uh, exactly when we hit the fifty seven hundred low, but a, oh, a little okay. over a month later in Bitcoin. Okay, but then I also so I totally get what you were saying about how a lot of these could drop ninety five percent, and that wouldn't necessarily um, be, <laughs> uh, I guess, in, inaccurate in terms of their valuation. But so why is it that the higher quality projects aren't seeing a lower drop? Well, you know, most things are down pretty far. I mean, Bitcoin is down right now uh, a little over what's a little over sixty percent from its highs, and and a lot of projects are down eighty percent from their highs, um, including some of the higher quality ones. Um, I mean, it, it, Bitcoin is 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 uh, currently one of the best performers, but um, you know, so I, I, I kind of everything's down a lot. And the interesting thing that's been happening in the last month, the change is that the lower quality projects are starting to suffer more. So something that I've I've kind of um, a, a very simple mental framework for trading is when you have bubbles or when you have um, – I, I won't use the term bubble because it, it, there's so much kind of um, baggage there. But when you have these extreme advances, generally you get junk rallies. And that was what we saw in December and early January where the worst quality assets rally the most. So you get you know the total pump and dump scams. You get kind of just the worst quality stuff is the thing that gives you that 5x. And after that, what, you, what typically happens is the entire market will correct – and the top quality assets will fall a lot. And Bitcoin, having had a 10x run, um, I thought a 70% correction is pretty standard. It's kind of pretty expected. And then you expect the junk stuff to fall 90%. And that, may, that might not sound like that big of a difference, but the compounding math is tremendous, right? So if you had a, a you know, uh, let's say a 5x return and then you lose 70%, you're still up. If you had a 5x return and you lose 90%, you've erased all of your gains. So, you know, the difference between a 70 and 90% sell-off is huge. And and what we're seeing now is pretty typical for all for kind of traditional markets as well. So overall, what's your opinion about what's going on? It sounds like you're kind of maybe slightly positive on it, that you think it's a good thing for the space. Yeah, I mean, I, almost anyone that I, I spoke to, but whether it's developers or investors, thought that things were unsustainable during the run-up at the end of last year and, and, and January of this year. Um, I mean, there's, you know, th things can't go up 10% every day forever, right? You, you just, the math doesn't work. And it was very clear that a lot of scams and, and very weakly valued test nets were being valued at outrageous prices. And that's not good. It's not good for the ecosystem. So from a, a, a basic capitalism perspective, it's a misallocation of capital. You don't want billions, you, you don't want ICOs raising $100 million that, you know, are not, where that money is not going to be intelligently spent. You want it to be a little bit harder to get capital. So the capital goes to the high quality projects where teams, um, there should be a higher bar for entry, right? You, you don't want someone to say, hey, I have an idea on a napkin, give me $100 million, because that person's very likely to basically walk away at the first sign of trouble, right? Move on to another project, you know, so it, it was an unhealthy state from a fundraising perspective, capital allocation, as well as a market psychology. You know, the there is risk, right? So I think people kind of forgot, like you see Bitcoin rallying every day for three months and it feels inevitable. It feels, um, you know, safe. And, and like, if I asked people in, in December, where, like, what's your best guess of where Bitcoin's going to be in six months or a year? Or, or um, if I ask kind of what are the odds that Bitcoin's 50% lower um, in a year than where it is now, people extrapolated and they said, oh, I think Bitcoin is probably going to be 300% higher in a year. And I think the odds of Bitcoin being 50% lower is close to zero. And that, you know, it, that's very dangerous because then what happens is people invest more than they can afford to lose and um, they take risks that result in losses, even if they're ultimately right. So, for example, let's say Bitcoin ends up being $200,000 a coin in two years. Well, if you if you max out your credit cards and we're using leverage on an exchange to buy Bitcoin at 19000 
you probably get margin called. You probably get wiped out entirely, or you might just be psychologically devastated and sell at the worst possible time. And we've seen that with and with some kind of retail investors, right? So um, you have this massive wave of new retail buyers in November, December, who are buying Bitcoin at levels twice as high as where it is currently. And some of them are basically gone forever. Some of them are so discouraged now, they feel lied to or betrayed or or, or they just feel like the idiots in the room. Um, and that's bad for the ecosystem. We would much rather somewhat steady growth. But you don't get that. So all new tech revolutions go through this. It was railroads in the 19, in, in the uh, 19th century, uh, whether it's the uh, personal computer boom in the 60s or the um, internet boom, you always have these kind of speculative uh, manias. And you get all the bad stuff that comes with it. Um, but it seems almost just like part and parcel of how how these new industries grow. Yeah. And for listeners who are interested, there is a really great book going into the history of these boom and bust cycles, which is, what is that Car- Carlotta Perez book? I, I, you know, I haven't read it, but it's been recommended to me by everyone. I'm embarrassed. To, <laughs> and, I, and I don't recall the name, unfortunately. <laughs> me neither. So I will link to it in the show notes because um, the, the name is somewhat long. <laughs> um, but one other thing I wanted to ask you was, so right now, obviously, there's kind of been this slow drawdown. Do you think we're hitting bottom or do you expect it to go lower or should we expect to see it go up now? Or what do you think? So I, I'm always uh, very, very um, humble. And I don't mean that in a, in a compl- self-complimentary way. I mean that in a, I don't know anything kind of way um, about any kind of macro forecast or prediction like this. Um, the so I, this is how I'm thinking about it. So um, many many people in the market are looking at something like three thousand dollars for Bitcoin or four thousand dollars as as a kind of typical bear scenario, and and they're getting those numbers based on a few different types of technical analysis, based on looking at historical analogs and for both Bitcoin to itself in previous kind of parabolic advances, as well as to some traditional market analogs. Um, also, kind of talking to people like some venture capital firms and people who aren't in the space yet, but who have been following it closely, they're saying, yeah, I think I'm going to buy around there. So that's a scenario. That That's one possibility. Um, I kind of don't think it's going to happen. My, my own, and, and it could happen. I'm not, you know, I, I can't tell you it won't, but um, I, I'm not waiting for that. Um, I, I, you know, don't invest more than you can afford to lose, but I, I'm not waiting for, for a drawdown that extreme. Um, I think we're going to have a bullish summer. And um, the reason I think that is a lot of the things that have kept out the institutional money. So actually, let me get a slight step back. One of the reasons we had the mega rally we had at the end of last year was you had the CME and CBOE futures launching, um, and there was the sense that the institutional money is about to get in the game. And people wanted to kind of front run that institutional money. Um, they wanted to you know, buy Bitcoin before an ETF launches, for example, right? And then the futures launched, and they launched with great volume, but then the volume kind of stayed flat. And similarly, you know, it doesn't look like there's an ETF on the horizon at the moment. Um, there's at least no, you know, the, the SEC has been kind of more negative than positive on that lately. So I think a lot of people bought these assets hoping, expecting that endowments and pensions and sovereign wealth funds were about to flood with money, and they didn't. And so there's no, there's very little new money flowing in right now. And the reason that that money, new money is not flowing in, among other things, one of them, a big one, is security and custody. So funds have to self-custody assets right now for the most part. It's a real – I was on the phone just yesterday with a family office that wanted to buy a, a very meaningful amount of um, – they, they literally used the term beta. So they said, you know, we're not sure exactly what we want. And these are pretty sophisticated investors, by the way. They've been following cryptocurrency for over a year. Um, they're like, you know, we think we want basically market cap weighted at the top five, but not dumbly. So we don't want, to, we don't want an index that automatically buys anything that gets in the top five because then you, you easily fall prey to market manipulation and pump and dumps and scams. But, but so, so they're kind of approaching intelligently and saying, you know, we want exposure to the cryptocurrency space in a relatively safe way. That probably means, um, you know, I, I use the term the Coinbase coins, Bitcoin, Ether, maybe Litecoin, maybe Bitcoin Cash. 
cash. Um, and that's not stating an opinion on those. It's just those represent the majority of the cryptocurrency market cap. And so if money flows into cryptocurrency generally, um, those four are probably going to, to move up with it, right? It's probably going to be highly correlated, um, at least in the short term. And they were asking me, Harry, like, how do we get access to this? How do we, you know, w- what's, the, what's the best way to do it? And it's, well, Coinbase is in the process of launching a custody solution. Um, and they're going to be adding additional assets. So they just announced they're going to be adding support for uh, at least some ERC-20 tokens to their custody, um, uh, custody offering. Kingdom Trust is beefing up their uh, custody offering. So Kingdom Trust is a qualified custodian. That um, What that means is that uh, you're legally allowed to use them for custody if you're a fund, for example. And you have other groups like uh, there's a group called Anchor that's going to be launching. Another name um, that I'm, I'm, I'm frankly unfamiliar with, but, but that, that was thrown out at me uh, yesterday was Cambrian as another group that's working on custody that's credible. Hmm. Um, and so, so I think the story, I think you're not going to have meaningful assets that are third party custody probably for something like six months, maybe even a longer. But just the narrative that custody is right around the corner, very, very credibly, not as a hypothetical, but like. Like Coinbase is literally rolling it out right now and institutions, um, you know, firms and funds and family offices are right now starting to, to do diligence on which custody provider do they trust and are they going to give that $100 million of Bitcoin to. That narrative, I think, becomes a rolling kind of a, a steamroller, right? So you're going to see day after day new headlines coming out, um, I think, starting around uh, maybe late April, maybe June at the latest about the institutionalization of the space, kind of similar to end of last year, right, where we had, okay, the CBOE announces futures, then the CME, then you have, you know, you have LedgerX with options, and you have, it was just kind of one good announcement after another about the institutionalization, and then now we've had nothing, right? Like, there's been very few bullish announcements in that regard, but I think it's going to pick up again, and that story will will be real this time. So that once that custody um, starts rolling out, basically, I think six months after that, you're going to get a lot of institutional money coming into the space. So let's continue this discussion around the institutionalization of the space. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for assisting brands and boosting business results and can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and Leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution just won't scale. The team at QuantStamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with the growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, QuantStamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. I'm speaking with Ari Paul, CIO of Block Tower Capital. So yeah, that's actually something that I was interested to learn more about because um, I recently did a podcast with Mike Belshi around custody solutions, and he was talking about how uh, he 
just did this acquisition of Kingdom Trust and how they are a qualified custodian, which means that that's sort of like a building block that something like an ETF would need. And I had actually told him this story about how you described to me how you guys do your own custody. Have you switched that at all? Um, for the listeners who maybe didn't hear that episode with Mike Belshi, I talked about how you, I guess, were wrapping your some hardware uh, devices with what was it saran wrap or bubble wrap or something and then using um glitter nail polish to create a unique design and photographing it to make sure there was no tampering yeah that you know the 30 seconds on this uh or we can talk more about it if if you want um is you know so security of cryptocurrency um is fairly easy to do reasonably well if you don't have to trust anyone. So if you're securing your own asset, when I say fairly easy, I mean, I don't mean, you know, it, if you grab someone off the street, it might be 20 hours for them to learn how to do it. So it's it's not easy in the consumer sense, but it's you don't have to be kind of a rocket scientist. Um, you can, you know, so using hardware wallets, for example, are, are pretty secure. And if you securely store a backup of your seed and what's, you know, what's really challenging is um, if, if you don't want to have to trust one individual. And that's the problem that like a family office has, right? So, so the CIO doesn't want to be responsible for the assets and, and they don't want any one employee to be able to walk away with $100 million in Bitcoin. So that's, that's the really hard part. The, for us, you know, I, it, it's, it's very different. If you're an individual with $50,000 of Bitcoin, you don't have to worry about being the target of state level actors, right? Like your bank vault is probably secure for $50,000. But if you have $100 million in assets, like I'm not going to trust a bank vault, right? Um, it, it, whether it's a bank insider or whether it's a, a foreign government like North Korea or Russia, at some point, you have to worry about state-level actors kind of targeting you or, or at least hackers with that kind of uh, capability who could, who could physically, um, for example, uh, break into an office and plant hardware keyloggers on your devices. So um, that, that story about the, the glitter nail polish, um, this is why we do it. So if you want a way to securely back up seeds or to generate public-private keys um, for, let's say, assets that do not have, uh, they're not integrated into hardware wallets. Um, you need an air-gapped device, and what that means is just a laptop that's never ever touched the internet and never will. So you walk into a Best Buy, you buy a U.S. manufactured uh, laptop, and, and then you load software onto it with. Uh, you can use a USB stick once. Um, the issue here is if you take a USB stick and you transfer to the laptop. That's about as good as you can get. Um, but you never ever want to take a USB stick from the AirGap. Uh, laptop back to an internet connected device because the NSA has invented viruses that will hop from your USB stick to the air gap device, steal data from it, save it on the USB stick without you knowing in ways that are truly undetectable, and then publish it to the internet to, to some source. Oh my God. So, um, yeah, so you can never ever base, and it's really hard. How do you get data from an air gap device onto an internet connected device to back it up, right? So you, you don't want to use a wire, you don't want to use a USB stick. Um, you can burn CDs, that's one thing that the CIA does. The, the other thing that an NSA um, security specialist told me uh, was, and this is, this is what, what I do now, is you have encrypted data on your screen, literally like visible on your screen. So like encrypted private keys, and you take a picture of them. And the idea there is you, you know exactly what data is visual, is, is, is there, right? And so um, it's, it's – I don't want to say – I'm very wary of making absolute statements with computer science security because people can get very creative with viruses. But um, you're, you, know, you can be pretty confident that the, the, what you're seeing on your screen, uh, there's nothing secretly encoded in the pixels. Um, and so you're taking a picture. You've encrypted private keys. There's no other data there. You can then take that picture, convert it to text, and email it to yourself, let's say. And if, if, that, if those private keys are encrypted using encryption that is stronger than the Bitcoin network, that's a pretty secure way to do it. 
So the reason we use the um, the glitter nail polish is if, if I asked, so you always want to think like, what is the attack vector? So I'm not really worried about the encryption being broken because it's it's stronger than what banks or the NSA or Bitcoin uses. It's And it's, it's not like we have any special encryption. It's very easy to just kind of, um, you know, get access to really good encryption today. The risk is that someone places a keylogger on that device. The device itself is encrypted. Uh, so if someone gets access to the device, it doesn't matter. I, I would just destroy it. The risk is that they get access to the device and... I don't know that. And so they place a hardware keylogger or potentially a software keylogger on the device, and then you enter a password to decrypt the, the files. Um, so how do you prevent that? So you place the laptop in, in a tamper-evident bag and wrap it in tamper-evident tape. And the, the tamper-evident bag and tamper-evident tape, you can literally buy them on Amazon. It's just things that are made basically to not be um, – you can't rewrap it. So like, it, like if, if something's wrapped in tamper-evident tape and you open it, the tape is then like permanently damaged. You can't reuse that tape. Um, the problem, though, is, well, let's say someone accesses our device and sees what tamper-evident tape we're using. They could just buy more of that, right? And they could potentially rewrap it in a way that we wouldn't see. So then you splatter it with glitter nail polish and take a picture. And the idea, again, this came from an NSA kind of uh, security expert. Um, the idea is that that you just can't recreate. So someone can go on Amazon and find the glitter nail polish, uh, but recreating a splatter pattern, um, you know, is, is about as close to impossible as, as we can get. Huh. This is so fascinating. We're actually running out of time. Um, but before we go, there was just one last thing that I wanted to flag for listeners that caught my eye in the news was this week, which is I feel like there's been a lot of chatter about projects that are considering maybe changing their consensus algorithms to um, prevent centralization of mining. I'm noticing this kind of talk in Ethereum, in Monero. Um, apparently, there's also been discussion about it in recent months with SiaCoin. And a lot of this is because um, some big miners are creating specialized chips, ASICs, to mine those particular cryptocurrencies. And as we have seen in Bitcoin, that has caused a lot of centralization centralization in the mining community, which uh, can pose a security risk. Um, however, also not using ASICs, also lower security in a certain regard. Um, and so I just wanted to flag these. I will put links to these different stories in the show notes, uh, just so people can read about it. I do think that this gets to kind of an ongoing discussion that I'm just noticing around the space around governance and around decentralization versus centralization, um, security and um, efficiency, all kinds of issues. But Ari, do you have any thoughts on on any of these issues? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, this is weird because some really, really smart people are, are pushing for um, ASIC resistance, uh, people I respect and like a lot. I don't get it. I've never heard a good argument for it. Um, the entire game theory around proof of work requires that basically you have skin in the game in the form of hardware. If you don't have that, so this is the problem that Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash face right now. If you have the same uh, algorithm, if the same ASIC can be used or the same mining equipment can be used for multiple coins, it's fundamentally insecure. It, I mean, it means you literally, like the whole concept of proof of work does not apply because what it means then is I can double spend attack or do what's called a rollback or reorganization attack on another coin and I can profit from it because I can short sell that coin or I can double spend that coin and I haven't devalued my hardware because I can then use that hardware to mine another coin. So the entire premise of proof of work, uh, or, or at least a, a key part of it, is 
if you attack, if, if Bitcoin miner, you know, when, when there was only one Bitcoin that had SHA-256, if Bitcoin miners were to attack the Bitcoin network, they'd be hurting themselves. Because even if they were able to make $50 million kind of double spending Bitcoin, the value of their hardware would fall by more than that because the Bitcoin price would fall and therefore the value of their ASICs would fall. So this idea that you want to be, you want to avoid mining centralization and, and um, you know, have ASIC resistance to me makes no sense at all. Yes, there is absolutely an attack vector and a risk of uh, centralization of mining. Mining centralization is awful. But it's less awful than the alternative. The alternative is, let's say you have GPU mining. Um, what that means is that anyone can, like a giant GPU miner of one coin can just attack your coin for free, for, entirely for free. And um, botnets are another thing, right? So um, like there's a debate, a, a decent amount of the, of the mining of GPU coins right now. Um, and by decent, I don't know what the percentage is, but it could become significant is botnet farms. And so someone could very easily take over a bunch of botnets, attack one coin and then attack another coin at no cost to themselves. So I frankly, I don't yeah. get it. Yeah. So something that was kind of interesting about the Siacoin issue that I mentioned is that Siacoin had actually previously written a post in favor of ASICs explaining that they provide more security to the network. And so they, I think, started working on manufacturing a Siacoin specific ASIC, but Bitmain basically beat them to the punch. And so ultimately they decided not to change their proof of work because they felt like they would be doing so in a self-interested way. And and um, they, I'll, so I'll link to this blog post in the show notes, but they ended it by saying that they welcomed the Bitmain mining Siacoin members. So <laughs> um, I, I see, I mean, I can see it on both sides. You know, it, I think it's one of those situations where there's like pros and cons, but I definitely understand from a security perspective why people have uh, said that having a six mine your network is actually a good thing. Yeah, it's important to note, just the, the one sentence is that um the security that comes from proof-of-work mining does not come from decentralization primarily. So, so there's two attack vectors here. So one, even if one miner has 100% of the mining power, if they're a rational, self-interested economic actor, they're likely incentivized to be a good actor purely for selfish reasons because they have this massive sunk cost in, say, Bitcoin ASICs, and therefore their motive is for the Bitcoin price to go up and stay up. And the way you do that is by being a good actor as the, as the dominant miner. So the risk of a 51% attack does not really come from from someone having majority mining hash power. Um, the protection of, of proof of work does not come from having decentralized mining. It comes from forcing people to have skin in the game. Now, so why is centralization dangerous? I'm not, a, I'm not saying mining centralization is, is not terrible. It is. The risk is if you have one actor that has, say, 51% of the hash power, or even 30%, they're then susceptible to, say, state-level attacks, right? So the concern with the most hash power being in China is not that, that I'm scared of Bitmain. It's that I'm scared of the Chinese government taking over Bitmain, right? And then and the Chinese government is not a self-interested economic actor in this regard. The Chinese government might be perfectly willing to destroy $2 billion worth of ASIC value to destroy Bitcoin, right? If they think Bitcoin is destabilizing to their currency or their central bank or capital controls or something like that. So mining centralization is bad, but I think it's better than the alternative. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to unpack there. So we'll have to have you on the longer show. But it's been so great discussing the news with you. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. Also be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.
The growing crypto ecosystem is being challenged by uncertainties and regulations, and Start Engine is here to help. The SEC, CFTC, and state administrators have been issuing subpoenas by the dozens. How is this going to affect ICOs and exchanges? This is why Start Engine is launching the second edition of the ICO 2.0 Summit, co-sponsored by T0 on April 20th in Santa Monica. This year's theme is the path to liquidity. Leaders in the crypto world will be coming together to discuss how to move forward with regulated ICOs and regulated exchanges. Come and hear crypto innovators such as Patrick Byrne, T0 CEO, Nathan Latka, and many more. To register now and receive a 20% discount, visit startenginesummit.com and enter the code UNCHAIN20 to attend this incredible summit.